All right, good morning, Mercy Hill. Good to be with you guys. We're glad to be back in Memphis to worship Jesus this morning. We um, missed you last Sunday. We were stuck in Houston, um, a few of us, coming back from the Soma Retreat in San Diego. And there we were greatly encouraged as we were gathering with this little family of churches that is called Soma and that are committed to saturating North America with the gospel through making disciples through missional communities, planting missional communities all across our cities and uh, seeing ordinary people like all of you grow up into the grace of Jesus and know that you're missionaries who have been called out to make a huge difference in the lives of people that you just rub shoulders with every day and that uh, their lives could be changed for eternity uh, as you have the opportunity to to make disciples, to see Jesus daily, and to declare Jesus to, to those that you're with. Today we're studying in Ephesians 6, and uh, in 2012, there was a commencement speech that was given by David McCullough of Wellesley High School in Wellesley, Massachusetts, and it swept the nation by storm. Some of you might remember this speech. It could really be, it was only about 12 minutes, but it could be summed up in this one phrase, a commencement speech to high schoolers, summed up in this phrase, you are not special. What a thing to tell high schoolers who are launching out with the rest of their lives in front of them. Do any of you remember this speech? No? They're launching out, and it was reported on the news, it swept America. This, this slogan of all times that you would tell someone when they have all of their life ahead of them, and they're thinking about all of their dreams and all that could be, and that you would begin that journey, the very first step of that journey, with the words, you are not special. Why would this English professor who knew his students well deliver such a message? Well, it seemed to strike a chord with not only the students in that high school, but obviously not with you guys because you don't remember it, but with the rest of most of America because the news reported it, the video was watched a few million times, and it seemed to ring true. The idea that David was trying to give these students the idea of turning away from a life of selfishness in which he went on to say that kids are awarded participation trophies all their lives. They're coddled all their lives. They're told that they're the best all their lives. When the very definition of that word is only an English professor could remind us, when the very definition of that word best means that there can only be one. But you're the best. And he went on to point them toward the truth that living a life of selfishness will not bring you a life of happiness. Instead, living a life of selflessness in which you are more focused on others than you're focused on yourself actually brings a life of fulfillment. Now, why do I bring that up today? I think that idea sets the stage well 
for what Paul is calling us to consider. In this text, he's calling us to consider our work as worship. In other words, what you do, Paul is going to say, is not all about you. We need to hear that. What we do is not all about us. We're in a series entitled, Who Am I? And Paul is informing us how to live in light of the gospel. Because the gospel informs every microcosm of our lives. The gospel is not simply that Jesus lived and died and rose again. It's not simply that. Yes, the gospel is the story that Jesus lived and he died and he rose again. Yet the gospel continues to impact our lives and every aspect of our lives on a daily basis. Because Jesus is with us. He's put his Holy Spirit in us. And so the gospel impacts us daily, particularly in our work. Today we're in a section in which Paul's addressing the topic of work. Not so much what we accomplish or even how efficient we are. Let me say that again. Not so much what we accomplish or even how efficient we are. Or who we become. But how we do our work. And who we do our work for is actually more important than what we do. How we do our work. And who we do our work for is actually more important than what we do. The big idea is this. God is inviting you to join Him as a co-creator in the work He is doing. And in this, He promises great reward. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, you need to... Actually, I want to look at Ephesians 5 for just a second. I want to glance back in order to understand the the context for Ephesians 6. Because if you know anything about the book of Ephesians, you know that Paul spent the first three chapters telling us who God is, telling us what God has done, and then he's spending the, the rest of his time telling us what God is calling us to do in light of the gospel that he's laid out for us in those first three chapters. So as he moves toward activity... You know that he's been talking about this is how you should live with your spouse. This is how you should live with your children. Now he's saying this is how you should live at work. But if you back up and you look at what's the context for all this, the context goes all the way back to Ephesians 5. And in Ephesians 5 verses 15 through 17, Paul gives us what's probably the best time management advice ever given. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So the context is understand the will of the Lord. Then he goes on in verse 18 and he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then finally he says in uh, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so the context of how to relate to your wife and how to relate to your children and how to relate at work, all the context of all of this framework comes, as Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, understand the will of the Lord, and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
in essence, Paul is saying, if you want to know what the will of the Lord is, and how many of you have said, man, if I just knew what God's will was. Paul is saying, if you want to know what the will of the Lord is. Paul is saying, if you want to be filled with the Spirit, if you want to walk in the Spirit. How many of you have said, man, if I could just walk in the Spirit, like more than five minutes after my devotional time in the morning. You know, walk back in... Walk upstairs, start yelling at the kids. Been reading in the Bible for an hour. Walk upstairs. Ah. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, if you want to know what the will of the Lord is, if you want to love others, if you want to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, how many of us want those things? Paul is saying you do that in the context of family. You do it in the context of the way you relate to your spouse. You do it in the context of the way that you relate to your children. And you do it in the context of work. And I would dare say that if we don't learn how to work in a way in which we are filled with the Spirit, in which we know the will of the Lord, we won't do it anywhere else. And Paul's going to give us some really simple, really simple principles for how to do that, how to really work well. But before we end, there's a word that I need to unpack really quick because I think some of you probably have some questions. If you look at this text instantly, you see in verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Or you may um, even have a translation that says slaves. we got to talk about that really quickly because we're on the heels of MLK week. And so for us, many of you are probably asking the question, why did Paul not say, why did he not call for slavery to be abolished? Why is he instead giving these instructions for slaves? Is he embracing slavery? No. But in order to understand this, we've got to understand Greco-Roman culture. Many theologians believe that up to one-third of Rome was made up by slaves at this time. A third of Rome. Imagine that. Now, slaves in this day and time... We can't compare it in a parallel way to what we think of as like human trafficking today. Modern day slavery. Or what we would even think of as slavery in colonial America. In this day and time in which Paul is writing, slavery, it wasn't about a particular class system. Slaves were doctors and teachers and administrators. Um, some slaves were manual laborers. Others were educated people. Some slaves had even sold themselves into slavery in order to pay a debt off. And for most of them, the majority of slaves in this day and time, slavery was not for life. Usually by about the age of 30, someone would have worked their way out of the debt that, in which they owed. And, and if we think about Paul in his day and time, for him to call for slavery to be abolished, think about the little group of people that he's writing to, this little grassroots movement, so small, they were, legally they couldn't even practice a religion. They weren't even recognized at this time. They were considered unlawful. Um, they had no political power. But even within that, make no mistake about it. There are no excuses for slavery in the past or in the present. And in no way does the Bible um, uphold what we experience through slavery in America. Through colonial America. In no way. In fact, Paul would go on to say at times, consider your brother 
now no longer a slave, but consider him a free man. And he would encourage throughout the New Testament, we would see individuals to set their slaves free. But here's what I find to be interesting if you look at this text. The gospel truth in this passage is so robust that the churches in Ephesus were able to see slave and master reconciled under one authority. Think about that. Likely within the church, I've got to think that there were some slaves who were deacons. Which would have meant that their masters would have come under their authority within the church. And that this group of people were able to come under the authority of Jesus Christ in such a way that they could all get along. And that they could figure out how to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul's instructions here, they would have been incredibly countercultural. He's calling for equality. He's calling for justice. He's calling for brotherhood. But for us, I want to dive into verse 5. And let's look at verses 5 and 6. And I want to look at some simple gospel principles that we can learn for work. Because we live in a day and age um, in which maybe we don't relate in the same way to slavery. But we all still have a boss, right? We all have a boss. And uh, you say, well, everybody doesn't have a boss. Brad, who's your boss? Well, I have a boss. I work with elders here. We're a plurality of elders. And, and hey, if I started showing up and just said, hey, guys, I think we're going to just uh, Psalm 50, verse 3 today. No prep. After a while, you guys would be like, we got to get rid of that guy. Like, everyone has a boss, right? And so we can learn a lot looking at this text. Look with me at verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. A lot we can learn here from Paul's instructions. Uh, I want to I share quickly three simple gospel principles for work. Simple gospel principles for work. And then I want to talk about those after I share them. The first is this, work diligently all the time. Work diligently all the time. We live in a day and age in which faithful, hard-working, conscientious people are seemingly impossible to find in some industries. I was in Best Buy um, several weeks ago. I was looking for a, a new GPS watch and there were two young guys that were having just chumming it up behind the register in the back and uh, I needed some assistance. I stood in one part of the store for a long period of time only to be told that I was in the wrong part of the store and I needed to go to another part of the store. I get back to the back. These guys are having a private conversation. I, I could hear it all. It was unrelated to work and they're chumming it up these two 20-year-olds behind the register and they're having so much fun and I am on the other side of the register. Have you ever seen the guys that land planes? You know, using the bit. So I'm over here and I'm kind of like, you know, customer. Don't You know, if you've ever heard it, customer, do you work here? I see the shirt. I, you're standing, like, or, could you answer a question? And um, I didn't do it like that. That's what it felt. Like. And finally, they break off their conversation as if I am inconveniencing them. Do you need something? Yes. I mean, it's so hard to find conscientious, faithful employees. 
You've probably experienced this at some big box store. Uh, someone recently, a, a friend of mine posted this on social media. He said, 10 things that require zero talent. Being on time. Work ethic. Effort. Body language. Energy. Attitude. Passion. Being coachable. Doing extra. Being prepared. Now, those things might not require superpowers or amazing talent, but they do require effort. And in this text, Paul is going to inform us why we should put forth effort in our work. He says that we should work, um, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Fear. We are acknowledging Jesus and the authority earthly masters represent when we come under the authority of our earthly masters or our bosses we're acknowledging that we also are living under the authority of Jesus you find someone that doesn't know how to submit to their authorities whether that's an elder a boss an administrator at school you'll find someone who is not filled with faith It's impossible to say, I love Jesus, but I don't submit to any of my earthly authorities. Paul says that we should do that with fear. But then he also goes on and says we should do it with a sincere heart, meaning with an honest attitude, with honest speech. In the past, the highest compliment that could be said of a man years ago was that he was an honest man who gave an honest day's work. And do you see what Paul is laying out here? Because even someone who would be a slave, that if they can speak frankly to their master, if their master knew they could be trusted, then they would be someone who represents Jesus well and who also is given authority. Think about Joseph's life in the Old Testament. Joseph came out of prison with amazing authority because he feared the Lord. And all too often Christians don't have that kind of reputation. All too often Christians have the reputation of being cheap, of being stingy, of being debtors. And Paul goes on and he says, hey, serve with fear and with a sincere heart. But let me tell you, like he doesn't leave any stone unturned. He said, let me tell you what a sincere heart looks like. Not by way of eye service. It means you work equally as hard whether the boss is watching or not. Not by way of eye service. You say, you don't know what my boss is like. doesn't matter. He says, not as a people pleaser. Which means not to get ahead or for selfish gain. But serving Christ. I think my dad, um, I kind of take this passage of scripture a little bit for granted. Because my dad instilled within me. And he modeled well for me what it looks like to work hard. And to do it unto the Lord. Um, You say, but you don't understand my job. Listen, I remember the last job that I did painting houses. Um, I was in seminary. I was making 10 bucks an hour. And I was painting houses. The last job I did, I remember leaving that job at dark. um, The guy that I had been working with, his eardrum had burst. He had gone to the ER. And I was sitting there and I was painting these metal wrought iron poles that have the ivy on them. You know what I'm talking about? And I was painting it with an oil-based brush. It was just before Thanksgiving. It was cold. The paint was getting thick. And I was trying to finish the job. And I said, I'm going gonna, 
I'm going to paint this pole like it's mine. I want to know it's done well. I want to know, I'm going to finish this job right. When I got home, I had strep throat, 103 fever, but I had finished the job well. That was the kind of work ethic that my father instilled in me. You don't leave things undone. You work not as if your earthly boss is watching you, but you work as if Jesus is watching you because he is your boss in heaven. Now Paul goes on and he says, he unpacks that truth in verse 7. And I don't want to spend much time on it. It's really clear. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And the principle is just really simple. It's this. Remember, God's your boss. You think you have an earthly boss that's your boss. He's not your boss. God is your boss. Richard Koken said it this way. As workers, we are one part of the means by which our loving creator provides for the daily needs of the world. Whether we write contracts or computer software or sermons, fix pipes or broken arms or trucks, or wash the family laundry, dirty windows or, po- or pots in a restaurant, we worship God when we do it for Him. For we write, fix, and wash to feed the family and to earn money to contribute to the gospel work of our church and to seek opportunities to witness to our fellow workers and to please the big boss, Jesus, enthroned in heaven. I think we struggle to consider our work in that way. Finally, in verses 8 and 9, we see the third principle that Paul gives us. Everyone answers to someone. Everyone answers to someone. Look at verses 8 and 9. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. At the end of the day, we will all answer to someone. We'll be judged according to our faithfulness and how we followed our earthly masters and also in how we led anyone who was placed in our leadership or in our sphere of influence. Now, surely this passage seems to be speaking of heavenly rewards. I don't believe it's salvific. So I don't, I don't believe that our salvation is dependent upon this. But it seems to most likely be speaking to heavenly rewards. However, I don't think that this is referring to only heavenly rewards. Because oftentimes, faithfulness is rewarded by our earthly bosses, even here on earth. But let me ask you this. What do you do if you have an evil earthly boss? What do you do if you have an evil earthly boss? Paul would seem to be saying, and he, he even takes this further in 1 Peter, where he says, hey, you're, you're a slave and, and something good happens to you and you give a good response. What good is that? But you're a slave and you're beaten unethically and you give a good response. Then, he says, you have suffered in Jesus' name. 
Paul seems to be saying that if we have an evil earthly boss, that we should serve them as if we are serving Jesus. Not a man or a woman. Which means, you say, they don't deserve it. Well, let's talk about the gospel. Neither did we. But when we serve our boss as if we're serving Jesus, it means that even when we have an evil boss, it means your attitude can be joyous no matter how you're being treated because your work has become worship. Your work has become worship. Now, I do want to give three caveats to this passage Three times in which we should be careful about serving our boss. As long as their command is, one, not immoral. You think about Exodus 1 where the Hebrew midwives would not kill their baby boys as they were commanded to. Why would they not kill the baby boys? Because it was immoral. So we follow our bosses as long as what they are commanding us is not immoral. Secondly, we follow their commands as long as it is not idolatrous. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said, we will not bow down to this statue. We will not worship this king, this earthly king. We will worship our heavenly king. So as long as what we are being commanded to do is not idolatrous. And the last one is going to be a little bit of a struggle in our day and time. As long as the command is not suppressing the gospel. Think about Acts 4 where the apostles looked at the Sanhedrin and the council and they said, we will not stop preaching Jesus. And so this is a little controversial because for some of you in your work handbook, it says you can't talk about religion at work. And so what do you do? Does that give you permission? Do you walk in to the office and on office time do you strike up a conversation about religion and do you say, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus and then all of a sudden you get fired for it? Does that make you righteous? Likely not. But what do you do if you're sitting in the break room and a conversation comes up and someone asks you about your church, someone asks you about your faith and you have an opportunity to share with them your love for Jesus? And you have an opportunity to share with them how you have seen Jesus and to declare the beauty of Jesus to this individual. Maybe even invite them to your missional community or to church. And someone overhears this and reports you and you get fired over it. Paul in the New Testament would say, count it joyful that you've had the opportunity to suffer for Jesus name. Very controversial in our day and time. I just want to end with this last couple of questions. Why don't we work for Jesus? I mean, I think most of us would struggle in looking at this text and hearing it in no, some of you, maybe you knew, hey, my earthly boss is not my boss. Jesus is my boss. Maybe you've known that. Maybe you're like me. And um, that was a lesson that was taught to you as a really young child, and you've known that all your life. But if you're still like me, I gave that one example. I said I did a really good job painting this house and finished it even when I was sick. That sounds really good. I struggle really big time with work. 
Like some of you struggle with drug addiction. Some of you struggle um, with alcohol. Some of you struggle with uh, lust or pornography. Some of you struggle with um, just putting your faith in um, just the next big thing that's going to happen. I struggle with work. It's one of the places that I have struggled all of my life. On every side from being a workaholic to then finding my identity in work. And it's, it's, it's a daily struggle for me. Why don't we work for Jesus? Whether you're lazy, which is, I can be lazy, but usually that's not my problem. Why don't we work for Jesus? I usually work for myself, and that's a whole other set of issues. Why do we struggle so often with faithfulness at work? Why do we struggle to see work as worship unto Jesus? I want to read you one page from Julie Canlis' book, A Theology of the Ordinary. And I can't give this book a high enough recommendation. It's very small, you can see. And so I would highly recommend that you take a weekend and read through A Theology of the Ordinary. Julie Canlis begins in this way. Three years ago, my husband and I moved our family back to America after living 17 years abroad. Upon our return, our then eight-year-old daughter, who had been born and raised in Scotland, asked, Mom, why do all the signs in America say the best or the biggest or the greatest in the world? I, American that I am, had not even noticed. Does one notice the air one breathes that the grass is green? Although I had not been aware of the extreme marketing claims that bombarded us far and wide, I was becoming aware of similar language among American Christians, although directed toward a different purpose. It seemed as if all my new acquaintances were reading books called Radical by Platt or Passion by Giglio or Crazy Love by Chan or Relentless or impact, or fervent. In fact, that year's biggest Christian conference was called Passion. Could not help but notice the fact that it was held in none other than Atlanta's Infinite Energy Center. None of this in and of itself is wrong. But it comes with an expectation that we can do more damage, that can do more damage than good. Without an equal emphasis on discipleship in normal life. Where our energy is less than infinite. The gospel can become imbalanced and undeveloped. I'm asking the question. Why don't we work for Jesus? I think we live in a society in which we despise the ordinary. We're always looking for bigger and faster and better. But the problem with that is God's means of grace are most often seemingly ordinary disciplines. Like daily prayers. Or daily Bible reading. Or the Lord's table that we'll participate in in a minute. There's no casserole up here. It's just bread and juice. We oftentimes despise the ordinary 
But we must not despise the ordinary. Or we might miss God altogether. Because he's most often in the seemingly mundane, the unseen, the pedestrian aspects of our lives. Because that's most of our lives. And God is always with us. We don't have to ask him to be with us. He's always with us. We should ask that our hearts should be attuned to him. Remember the context of this passage? To know the will of the Lord, to be filled with the Spirit, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think that if we aren't filled with the Spirit at work, we will likely not be filled with the Spirit anywhere. We spend 25% of our time at work. And that's a good thing. Work is a good thing because God created Work before sin ever entered the world. He created work in order to bring glory to himself. Anything that you do, any trade that you have can bring glory to God. Anything. Someone who's a garbage man can bring glory to God. Seemingly insignificant jobs can bring glory to God. And if I'm going to be honest, I have to be the first to admit that this is a struggle for me to realize. It's a struggle. Let me ask you this. Why do you work? Why do most people work? What's their ultimate motivation? Is it for money? Is it for ego? Is it for society? Do you want to make this world a better place? All of those are very dangerous. We work in order to glorify God. We join Him as co-creators in submission to His will and to His authority. Too many people work for their own pleasure. Too many people quit jobs because they're unhappy. Listen, if you find a job that you enjoy 50% of the time, you have to, you're a remarkable person. If you find a job that you enjoy 70% of the time, you're an amazing person. You're most extraordinary. Missionary told us that on the field in South America uh, years ago, and it's always stuck with me. She was 70, and she gave us that advice because there were all these 20-year-olds that were pursuing what would make them happy in their work, as if work could ever make us happy. We quit jobs because we're unhappy. Um, we work for the accomplishment of the job instead of glorifying God. Have you ever thought that God might even have you in a job just because He wants you to be a witness to certain people who are around you? All too often we run from difficulty believing that God isn't in the hard stuff. Yet He is. God is in the hard, ordinary things of our lives. How did Jesus handle work? How did He live faithfully? In every aspect of His life, He followed the will of the Father which was oftentimes extremely ordinary. Julie Canlis says this, Have you ever been struck by the domesticity of the incarnation, how domestic it is? When he comes to earth, God places himself not in a palace, but in a family. Faced with a world, going to hell in a handbasket, God, God's rescue mission is to be born? How ordinary is that? And it's because of that that 
that Paul would write to us in Romans chapter 1 verse 12. And I love Eugene Peterson's translation of Romans 1.12 where he says, So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Listen, what would it be like if you began to consider Jesus as your boss? Like, how would your job change? I want you to think about that for a minute. How would your job change if you began tomorrow morning thinking of Jesus as your boss? Tom Rath, in his book, Vital Friends, he took uh, 8 million different um, interactions that Gallup polls had done over the years, and he compiled that data about work. And what he found was that there was one main indicator to determine if you enjoyed your work. In fact, you would be seven times more likely to be in, engaged in your job if this one indicator happened. You don't want to know what the indicator was? If you have a friend at work. It makes sense. I don't doubt that statistic. What if you took your friend with you to work? What if you saw Jesus as your boss? And you said, I'm going to work as if I'm working for Jesus. What would that look like? I want to encourage us that if we want to work for Jesus, and if we want to see Him, if we want to know His will, if we want to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and if we want to be filled with the Spirit, then we must slow down. I don't know if you've heard my tone today, but I hope my, even my tone has been a little slower. Because as I read this passage and struggle with my own heart, I know that I will be tempted to say that God is not creator, that I am creator. And that I am tempted every week to think that I can find happiness by fulfilling a task list. As if a lunch meeting with Taylor would mean that I am done with Taylor. We're not done, are we, Taylor? Because God's still got a lot of work to do on you and he's got a lot of work to do on me. It's so crazy how we consider ourselves to be creators. No, God has called us to come under his authority, in submission to him, and to be co-creators with him, following him, not leading him. That's what got Adam and Eve in trouble. God gave them work in order to remind them work is good. But when you lay down to rest, you're reminded that God is the one who gives you rest. And Adam and Eve were unsatisfied. They said, no, we will create on our own. We will be infinite. We will have infinite energy and infinite time and all of eternity. And we will eat of this fruit. And God said, and you will die. Because you were not made to be creator. You were made to rest in the arms of the creator. What would it be like if we slowed down? I want to remind you of the four portions of the day that we've talked about before. I'll put these on, on Facebook um, later this afternoon. You, don't, you can take a picture or you can write them down if you want, but I'll, I'll post them. Four parts of the day. Morning, sunrise at 6 a.m. to noon. Afternoon, noon to 6 p.m. Evening, sunset or 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Sometimes known as the first night watch. And the night watches when we should be sleeping if we can. 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Now, as you think of those four portions of the day, what would it be like if we split our days? And we considered those four portions and we paused. Okay? And so, I'm on my way here this morning. And I'm pausing. 
I'm going back to pick my kids up and to bring them back because Katie was at another church this morning for another ministry opportunity. And I'm praying through these three C's. What are my cares? Are there any worries or anxieties from this previous portion that are still harassing my thoughts and emotions? Cast them upon the Lord. I was, I, I was very anxious this morning. I was thinking, I think my message is going to be long, which is true. That's why I'm wrapping it up quickly. I was thinking, I don't know if it's going to be good or not. I don't know if people are going to be impressed with me. And I was reminded, people shouldn't be impressed with me. I hope people are impressed with Jesus. What are my cares? What are my carnalities? Are there any temptations from the previous portion of the day still loitering in, in my being where they don't belong? Seek the Lord's provision to resist and overcome these tempters before heading into the next portion of the day or night. Think about if I wouldn't have confessed into the Lord and I would have stood here this morning in front of you with the whole intention of did I make them laugh? Was I funny? Did I hold their attention? Did they think well of me? Did I give them some good information? Did I share something new with them? You walk out of here unchanged. Because none of that stuff matters. Only Jesus can change our hearts. What are your cares? What are your carnalities? Finally, what are your consolations? Are there good gifts God has given in the previous portion? Give thanks. Take hold of promises in order to derive the intended pleasures of His love for you. God is at work all around us. He's at work in the ordinary. Because He is with us in the ordinary of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank You that You loved us enough that You would be ordinary that you would leave heaven and that you would become man in order to show us how we can be human. God, would you help us as we look to Jesus to be more and more human, to embrace our weaknesses, to be reminded that you are God and that we are not, to rest, to enjoy time with our children, to enjoy time with our roommates, to enjoy time with our friends, to be reminded that life happens in the margin. And God, that as we go to work tomorrow, that we would see you, Jesus, as our boss, meaning that you're already pleased with us and that we can work and that we can find great joy in you. Jesus, thank you for your work on our behalf that means that we can rest in the gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen.